Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, former intelligence officer Lisa Maddox on genealogy and intelligence analysis. You are, as an intelligence analyst, collecting or pulling together data from a variety of different sources. But you also, as you're going through, um, you have to be able to discern good data from bad data. (laughs) There are people that lie in the realm of genealogy. It just, you have to source everything. Otherwise, it's a fabrication. It's, yeah, (laughs) it's not useful, you know, to the families. Doing the work and handing over the final product is is so gratifying to be able to open a client's eyes to their family history and, and, and teach them things they didn't know about. Lisa, thank you for joining me on Chatter. Thanks for having me. It's It's been a few years, hasn't it? It has been, yes. I mean, we can blame COVID, which, which I will. Uh, we can blame being busy, which I know is true of you and may, may have been true of me as well. <laughs> Uh, but it, but it's no excuse, you know. Going back ten or fifteen years ago, training classes, yeah. mutual circles of analytic friends. You were such a memorable and awesome instructor. So it is. It's really nice to see your face again. I, I was not setting you up to say that. But I, I'm no, glad you, you did. Can you tell me more about how awesome <laughs> I am? Uh, it Charismatic. Was, it, yeah, okay, oh, jeez. <laughs> it, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure back then. I have fond memories uh, of those of those experiences. But it's good to see you now as well, especially because you've done something. I mean, both of us know a lot of people from our previous work in intelligence analysis who, who have left the organization or organizations we've worked for, who have gone on to do some really interesting things, some yeah. of the private sector, some nonprofit, some government service in, in very different guises. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, <laughs> you are the only one who has created a professional genealogy business. Is that right? Uh, I think I am the only one. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, and it's it's funny because um, you don't think of it right away, but the skills um, of an intelligence officer transfer so smoothly to those of a hmm. genealogist and historian. It's, I want to yeah. dig deep into that, but that, that sound you're hearing in the background is the sound of hundreds of former intelligence analysts starting genealogy companies now oh, to create competition with you. So no, you can come work for me. You can't start your own. Ooh, are you are you hiring? Always. Oh, this is good. Okay, take note to self. If new job fails, call I actually have Lisa. a couple formers so um, that wow. have done some projects with me. So uh, is yes. the work virtual? Uh, yes, it is. Okay, so you have to go in the office. Um, you can see daylight again, which was one rec- you know prerequisite for my job after. The agency was to see daylight with were regularity. You in, were you in one of those vaults where uh, skiff, skiff, skiff? It, yeah, it basements. was all artificial light. But you, but you never had one of the skiffs that did have the window where, with the screening and everything, oh. but had the window where you had some sunlight coming. One, I, the last one, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I was in darkness. Okay. Are these volunteers, or do you actually pay? I pay. Okay, that's another plus. <laughs> Um, healthcare, 401k. Not there yet. Not there yet. Not but. there yet. All right. We might be able to work something out. Great. Anyway, I do I do want to talk about the genealogy quite a bit, but I also want to want to see how you got there. Yep. So I, I happen to know that you were at Georgetown, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I don't know why you went there. You grew up in Wisconsin, right? That's correct. Yes, I am a Wisconsinite. Um, so why not stay in, in Madison for school? Why go to Georgetown? 
Uh, I wanted to study national security, um, and Georgetown has a great national security studies program. The name has since changed. Um, but I applied to a bunch of different schools for graduate studies, um, Georgetown uh, being one of them, mm-hmm. and uh, ended up there in the fall of 2001. Mm-hmm. Georgetown really is a pipeline in many ways for the Foreign Service, the intel community, a lot of government jobs dealing with national security. Did did you feel that when you got there, that the whole culture was really geared towards this this service element for national security? Um, I did, but it became all the more apparent because the September 11th attacks occurred a week and a half after I started school there. And then it really became quite obvious, the yeah. <laughs> those that disappeared from the school for <laughs> several weeks because they had to go to work, um, and the discussions that we had in our, in our classrooms. So yeah, it became very apparent very quickly. Was that more of an explicit thing? Like the professors, many of whom former government officers, yeah. were saying, this is this is your duty to serve, or, or was it just more of the, the social, the, the feeling of everybody had this sense that even more than before, this was the time to step up? I think it's a a little bit of both. I think we had uh, a lot of adjunct professors that, uh, like you said, were either former or still involved um, in the national security apparatus. And I just, I have such a, like a visceral memory of a lot of these professors standing up in front of us um, in the classroom saying, we don't fully understand what just happened and we need you to help us understand what happened. Um, and that welcomed us into the fold. Yeah. Um, and then just the ethos of wanting to get those bastards and uh, never let it happen again. Uh, that was part and parcel of our, our culture at that point. So from Georgetown, at least from some of the buildings on the higher, you, you could see the smoke from the Pentagon when you're sitting in classes. Um, yeah, I, I actually saw the plane go into the Pentagon. I had dropped my friend off at Reagan National Airport, um, and we were listening on the radio about the New York um, planes, and then I dropped her off and saw the plane um, come in. Yeah, so I got out on the uh, key uh, key bridge, pulled over. Uh, all of us did, and um, we just looked up at the sky because the radio was saying incoming, 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 and we yeah. were looking for the next planes to come in. So that was wild. Oh, that's a rough. Obviously, it's a rough day for many, many people in yes. many ways. But that's that's a shock. And yeah. then trying to focus on were classes canceled that day? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember for how long. It wasn't actually that long, but a lot of the mm-hmm. students didn't come back for, including my. I didn't know he would be my husband, but I met my husband there, and he worked um, in a very interesting job for Energy Department of Energy. Their mm-hmm. Intel work. Okay. They look for um, possible uh, nukes on the loose, mm-hmm. and uh, he disappeared for several weeks. I thought and he was thought cute. It was and you said. And I wondered where he went. <laughs> But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of students disappeared for a while. You, you point out the Department of Energy Intelligence Shop, which is one of the, the lesser known yeah. places in the intelligence community. But I face this with you know, graduate students I've taught when they say, well, I really, I want to work in intelligence. So how do I apply to CIA? I said, well, okay, here's how you apply. There's a website, go. But <laughs> don't limit yourself to that. Exactly. your interests and your personality and different culture, I mean, there are dozens, some formally in the intel community, but some not, there are dozens of agency departments, bureaus that do something like intelligence, if not hardcore intelligence community work. 
And you ended up at one of those, uh, not DOE, but uh, NCIS. Yeah. I think most people associate NCIS, fortunately or not, with the, the TV show. And they think about it in terms of, well, the investigative portion. Right. But describe NCIS as an organization and why intelligence analysis makes sense as part of that. Yes, it um, it was an evolving story um, at NCIS because um, it is predominantly law enforcement in many ways, um, and there are people with badges there, and they love to flash their badges. The analysts don't get the badges, kind of a an issue there, but we can talk about that later. Um, but NCIS really came into the intelligence fold, um, especially after the 2003 USS, USS Cole bombing, um, and uh, I worked alongside um, – uh, intelligence analysts that supported that case um, and supported it a little bit myself as well. Um, but the analysts uh, uh, for NCIS, we were counterterrorism analysts. We look to, um, you know, monitor, research, and uh, analyze uh, terrorist threats against the Navy around the world. Mm -hmm. And we apprise Navy leadership of the evolving threat picture as they move around the world and make decisions about their um, uh, their, their movements and their and their personnel. So you're talking Navy Navy facilities and assets, <coughs> Navy personnel, mm -hmm. Navy Ships. Navy routes, like Navy. Mm -hmm. Yep, you know. like uh, I did a Suez Transit on mm -hmm. a ship. Um, yeah, you gotta uh, think through the various uh, threat picture in that area at the time, um, as well as more of the global trends as well, and put the full picture together for Navy leadership. So a lot of great analysis to be done there. Yeah. So there's, it seems to me, and, and I haven't thought this out, so bear with me. If there is a threat to, let's say, a terrorist threat, as you, you did analyze, a terrorist threat to the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, yep. something that, that says specifically, you know, this group or this individual is, is at least aspiring to do this, mm -hmm. maybe there's some information to give it some credibility, that obviously would get the attention of you working in your job at NCIS, but that would also get the job of analysts at the Defense Intelligence Agency yeah. and at the Central Intelligence Agency, maybe at the State Department INR if there's uh, embassy personnel nearby or just general situational awareness. Right. It might get the attention of, of people at other specialized agencies. So how does the NCIS work with people across the wider national security community without being a formal part or is it a formal part of the IC? Um, I think ONI is. Correct. But maybe NCIS, the Office of Naval Intelligence. Yes. But NCIS isn't. And yet I, I know you did have interactions with other people in the national That's security right. enterprise. How does that work? Um, so it's a great question. Um, and yes, so uh, each kind of – and I'll just kind of call NCIS uh, like a pseudo-intel organization because mm -hmm. really the work it did um, was even if it's not formally an intelligence organization. Um, so each – Intel uh, agency or organization, they have their own customers They're, that they need to inform about evolving threats. And ours was the Navy. Um, and uh, INRs is the State Department leadership. Um, and uh, DIA is the Pentagon, um, uh, the Joint Staff, a, a bunch of military um, 
uh, clients and customers that they put together their analysis and their their PowerPoint presentations and their papers for. So we all have our own customers that we need to feed, but we all, you know, the ultimate customer is the president of the United States, mm-hmm. and um, we there are um, community products and analysis, and a lot of different agencies or organizations feed into that analysis and product. And we absolutely did at NCIS, um, and we worked through the CIA and the State Department and DIA to feed in our analysis. And um, not only does each agency and organization have their own customer, but they have their own assets and their, mm-hmm. what they use to collect information as well. And NCIS had some good ones, actually, because they uh, had access to Navy bases around the world, um, They, uh, which we traveled to and had a presence at. Um, mm-hmm. You can collect information on the ground at those places, and it was indeed valuable information. Even without a badge, you were allowed to help with some of those efforts of collecting information? I mean, there's definitely, there's a process to doing it, and those yeah. that had the badges were, were part of it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You really wanted a badge. Um, <laughs> you know, so there is a culture there, um, and I don't want to badmouth anyone, but, you know, it's it's a culture that's in law enforcement organizations, the FBI as well. Mm-hmm. There are the agents, and then there are the analysts, and there is a little bit of a second-class citizen um, ethos for mm-hmm. the analysts because they, they don't have have the same rights and they don't have the shiny badge and they're told right. to stop at a certain point, you know. Um, yeah, different, so. different authorities, yeah, different domains. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that, you know, there's this hypothetical threat I mentioned, you know, a terrorist threat against the Fifth Fleet that, that you would be involved in looking at that, analyzing that, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, getting that information to interested decision makers. At NCIS, did you also have the ability to contribute to some of the other stuff NCIS does. For example, investigations of personnel and potential insider threat things. Would you apply your your analytic training to those issues as well? You could. Um, I specifically never did. You can move around. There's different mm-hmm. positions um, that would address some of those issues, um, absolutely. But yeah. um, I, for four years, served as a Middle East counterterrorism analyst. Hmm. Yeah. And how did you like the job and the workplace overall, uh, apart from the tension with the, the badges? <laughs> no, but, <yeah. laughs> um, but overall, did you did you like this this entree into the world of analysis? I absolutely loved it because I got to work alongside um, military um, personnel. So mm-hmm. I got to finally understand, you know, um, the different ranks. Navy ranks can be confusing. Um, <laughs> and um, and the leadership and the structure of the military um, and hierarchical flows um, and uh, the U.S. military presence around the world. So it was like a complete education um, of not only the military, but also intelligence at the same time. So it's really cool. It's a lot to take in um, and a lot to learn. So I was confused a lot. But, um, <laughs> you know, bringing on board all of all of that structure, um, I think, helped me understand where I wanted to take my intelligence career. Um, but, yeah, it was a great experience. And I think, especially at NCIS, they empowered, like they do at the CIA, they empower the subject matter expert mm-hmm. to brief his or her findings and 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 carry that you know forward, um, yeah. regardless of age or rank. 
Which is nice. Which is so cool. So as a young blonde woman, I ran through Bahrain, you know, briefing more higher ups than you could imagine. Um, you know, like I said, I rode aircraft carriers, flew off of them, mm-hmm. on and off of them. Um, very scary. Um, and briefing the, you know, the captain of a ship um, about um, various threats um, mm-hmm. right in that that stateroom. Um, so just amazing experiences um, and empowering experiences. You make it sound and maybe some of this is, you know, the the glory in retrospect. We make it sound like a, a really good and fun place to work, but you didn't stay there. You said after a few years, <laughs> so that implies you moved on. I think I recall you worked briefly at DIA, mm-hmm. but then ultimately came to the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. Describe the, the differences and in, in similarities between NCIS analytic work the DIA analytic work that you had a window into, mm-hmm. and then the CIA work, just in terms of the analytic culture and the role of the analysts. What are the what are the things that seem alike and seem different there? Yeah. So, you know, I came from the NCIS world, which had that dichotomy of the analyst and the um, law enforcement, you know, um, agent. Um, and then coming into DIA, there was no longer that law enforcement aspect. So that dropped off, um, uh, which was, you know, good bad, you know, depending on the day, depending on the project, whatever that may be. Um, And uh, DIA um, has a tether to the Pentagon and customers and clients at the Pentagon. So you get um, really quite the education about, you know, uh, military leadership and how that functions and flows at the Pentagon um, and briefing that leadership. At the time, we um, obviously had a troop presence in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and DIA um, did a lot of information feeding to those theaters of war um, and got to see that kind of up close and personal. Um, so is it fair to say that at NCIS, some of your senior briefings would, would largely be Navy leadership, mm-hmm. whereas at DIA, mm-hmm. you could be briefing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or someone in the office of the Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. that you might not have right. previously. Right. That's okay. exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, broader uh, customers and clients um, and um, uh, broader work in general. I mean, really, at NCIS, you're, you're focusing on global terrorist threats, but really the threads um, that are geared towards attacking the Navy mm-hmm. or the military or the areas around our Navy presence, like in that in those particular areas around the world. <clears throat> so the target set opens up a lot more broadly. So you really have a lot more data flowing in, a lot mm-hmm. more data to analyze, um, and a lot more customers to brief. So, um, sure. yeah, things got busier. And then uh, <laughs> you weren't there very long, though, right? You went to CIA soon thereafter. Uh, describe the, the analytic culture difference there. So um, walking in to CIA um, – they have such a better way. I don't want to insult anyone. Um, CIA takes care of its people so well. And I, I, I experienced that through training, through um, benefits, through all the resources that, that they give the officers there, which is just, it's a lot. Um, I hadn't experienced that on the military side as much. <laughs> so, um, so that was that was a little bit eye opening. I felt valued, and um, and unlike NCIS, where the agents might have a little bit more of that hierarchical advantage, yeah. um, you know, CIA there are the the operations officers. It's true, but um, 
the analysts um, uh, have a lot of respect and run the roost in many, many regards there, mm-hmm. um, especially when I had come in because we were in the counterterrorism years. I think those years might be over. Um, and I went into the uh, counterterrorism center, um, so CTC, mm-hmm. and we worked alongside all different kinds of officers, and we were all partners. And so I, you I were a counterterrorism analyst coming in, but I know you also did a variety of types of analysis. You, you You got your... You got your hands into political and economic and military analysis as well. That's a lot of roles. Uh, Which one of those, if any, did you like best? Well, and that's the thing I love about CIA, too. They really offer you such a variety of positions. And even if you don't have a background in it, they provide awesome training and support, um, for the most part, um, to be able to excel and thrive in a new role. So as a counterterrorism analyst coming in, knowing the Middle East, very, very well. I started off working um, that issue. Um, and then um, towards the end of my career, I actually um, led an economic team, like which is crazy. Um, not my background at all, but mm. what a fantastic free education I got on economics. I had PhD ec- economists on my staff. Like, I, so cool to just like walk through an issue with them and have them educate me. Um, uh, very, just fascinating and, and riveting. So um, I did a little bit of that, um, managed, um, and then um, I worked the Afghan issue for several years. So certainly saw a lot of um, and helped manage a lot of military um, analysis as well. So um, and and those are the major disciplines um, at mm-hmm. CIA. You've got political analysis, um, military analysis, and economic analysis, and then you could. You could add in some of the more unique ones like counterterrorism analysis and, mm-hmm. and some of the other fringe ones. Mm-hmm. In that managerial role that you described, you're, you're not a Ph.D. economist, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but but you, you had to understand the analysis well enough that you could provide guidance. And probably you played a really helpful role there, right? Because our customers, some of our customers are, no kidding, Ph.D. economists, advanced right. you know, P- at the Treasury in particular – but a lot of others, you know, the presidents and other cabinet secretaries and people at the State Department, they can't necessarily understand analysis if it is way in the weeds mm-hmm. on something like advanced economics. Mm-hmm. So as a manager, was part of your role helping to make sure that, you know, it had to make sense to you or else it wasn't going to make sense to the customers? Yes, um, definitely. Um, that is part of the job, um, but it's also having the broader vision of the issue. Um, so meeting with other teams and managers to understand what may may be happening more broadly in the uh, geographic region mm-hmm. or um, uh, in a particular discipline or if we know um, uh, a client's uh, particular interest or a policy move that's going to be made. You know, it's really – it's guiding – the vision and the analysis program of the team to meet the client's needs and then also bring them, the client or the customer, that analysis that is readable and is going to help them as they pursue, you know, uh, their meetings or mm-hmm. whatever they have um, on tap. And in that, you had to face the challenge that everybody who moves into a management role faces where you probably were pretty good at the substance. I know, I know you were. You, you probably liked some of the substance you worked on. And then suddenly when you're a manager, unless you're not doing the job right, um, you're not doing the analysis anymore. You're, you're giving people the resources they need to do the analysis. You're, you're, you're the champion for them That's to right. get what they need. You're hopefully helping to move that analysis forward through some experience and insight. But 
it's a different mindset. It's a different role. How did you how did you feel about that? Yeah, um, and uh, you captured that very nicely. A good manager will do that. There's always the bad ones. Um, so yeah, uh, and it, it was one of the reasons, um, uh, kind of for me in my decision to eventually leave. Um, I, I missed the substance and the excitement of the um, the work um, of being on the line um, and doing the analysis and the writing and the briefing. Um, but I did, I loved managing people as well. But when you get to a certain place in your career um, uh, at, at the agency, you kind of look around and see what positions are out there mm-hmm. um, at that GS level or at that managerial level. They're not as exciting. I'm just going to put that out there. there yeah. I, some people just really dive into the management and love it. Um, like I said, I, I really I liked it. I liked caring for the people. I love the people that worked for me. Um, but uh, just looking at um, where I could go in my next, you know, position, um, I wasn't I wasn't that excited about it. Mm-hmm. Well, you because of the, all these different vantage points you've had doing intelligence analysis for NCIS, for DIA, for CIA in different disciplines and managing in a different discipline. You are quite possibly the perfect person to talk about something that we, we have not really done a deep dive on here on the podcast, which is what actually is intelligence analysis? Mm-hmm. We talk about it, but we don't break it down and explain what the job actually is and, and why it's important. So, so let's do that. Um, let, let's start at the beginning. The, the first job, I mean, there are many jobs of an analyst, but one of the core jobs is, is the fundamental research. So be, before you get to the thinking and the putting together of ideas and putting together of words, you're, you're gathering information. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about what research is for any intelligence analyst on any topic, what it entails, and what kind of a person is good at it. Um, yes, the research is probably my favorite part. Um, So you are, as an intelligence analyst, um, kind of collecting or pulling together data from a variety of different sources. There are classified sources and there are open source sources. There are technical sources. um, There are human sources. um, There are machines that provide sources. um, All sorts of different sources. and the key is to pull together the whole picture, not using just one of those little silos of information. Um, you really want that all-source analysis. That That's what makes it mm-hmm. the medius. That's where you get the corroboration and the verification of information. Um, so, so that's part of it. Um, but you also, as you're going through and trying to locate information, um, you have to be able to discern good data from bad data. <laughs> Um, there are people that lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, is, there are um, errors in um, technical collected information. There are um, uh, open sources that are inaccurate. Um, there's, you really have to um, get a keen eye to, to being able to spot good and bad data. And just because data might not be great, and there's the whole spectrum of it, knowing where to put it and keep it mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, and use it, especially if you have limited data. I worked right. on target sets that had extremely limited data. And sometimes you got to use bad data. Yeah. And that's okay. But as an analyst and when you're writing and pulling it together, that's where you learn how to caveat and explain the sourcing of your information and why you're using it. 
Um, so, but I'm jumping ahead. But that's so. a, that's a good <laughs> but that's a good reminder, even on the research is. When, when, you, when you're bringing information in, you're seeking information or, or data, and, you, and you're trying to get it, you, you have to know that a lot of it is biased. And that doesn't mean deliberately misleading necessarily. Mm-hmm. But you know, people sometimes will claim that this news organization or this one is biased. And my reaction is all of them are biased because they <laughs> only have so much they can talk about. They have to make decisions. Is this a two-minute story right. or a 20-minute story? All of those have some bias right. in them. In terms of relative, uh, relative coverage, time and depth, so everything you get is going to have some bias in it. But in the research stage, you're still getting as much of it as you can, and then putting it in those bins of this is highly reliable, this is questionable, this I know it has a bias, but I can use that in the next stage to help weed through why it matters. Mm-hmm. When it comes to research. You're like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. You want to get as much as you can. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And the, and just one other thing to point out that's really important in the research phase um, is um, identifying and understanding the gaps in the information. Where mm. isn't – Where what are you missing? And that, be, that can become yeah. – that can be clear or it can be fuzzy. Um, mm. And you can address that in analysis, which is kind of the next stage yeah. of, of an intel officer's work. But um, but the gaps, I mean, and I love this part, once you identify them, you can try to close the gaps. You right. can try to find the information or mm-hmm. task the inf- or get the information, find creative ways to get at the information. Um, so that that can be that can be a fun part. And that's. As you already alluded to, that feeds into the that next stage of analysis. But then the analysis feeds back into research through the crafting requirements for collectors to go out and get, or in some cases, depending on your role, that you can somehow uh, collect yourself. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about analysis itself, because there is a process of analysis. There is tradecraft, as we call it, about how you put the data and information you get together to to develop knowledge and hopefully insight. So walk through your understanding of that. How, how is it that you process all of this data you've collected and try to get something insightful out of it? Um, I think the simplest way to answer that is you use other people, your colleagues, and you use analytical tools mm-hmm. to, to, to toss around the information, to mm-hmm. try it in one shape and form and maybe throw it on its head in a different shape or form. Um, to um, bring in other perspectives. We are all inherently biased individuals, um, and it's really good. You're not going to see everything, every angle, um, and it's really good to have brainstorming sessions to bring other perspectives in, um, collect mm-hmm. those perspectives, um, and then you have a whole new set of data on top of your data. It's right. not easy. <laughs> there's, a yeah. lot, there's a lot going on, um, and you, you, you just kind of work through it um, uh, back and forth. Like you said, it's, it's almost cyclical, the research and the analysis. Um, um, especially on the gaps. I like the fact that you yeah. brought that up because – I mean, it seems, again, a hypothetical case in my mind. Let's use the the, the terrorist threat in Bahrain again. Okay. Um, it might be that there's some local press report that hints at, you know, there's rumors about this upcoming attack. And maybe there's something that someone walks into an embassy somewhere and makes an allusion to it. But you know as an analyst, because you've been doing this for a while and you're good at it, that when there are threats of this type from this group, you're almost always getting intercepted communications about it because mm-hmm. we're that good for this particular group. 
And yet that's silent. There's nothing there on it. Mm-hmm. And as an analyst, you put that together and say, why, why aren't we seeing what we should be seeing if this is real? And of course, you can go multiple directions with that, yes. which is because it's not a valid threat. That's one. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, uh-oh, because they've clamped down on their information security and now we don't have that channel anymore. Let me check out what else is still coming in through that channel could of collection. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it could be just the timing of collection that hasn't been processed and put into the system yet for you to see. Yep. But as an analyst, that's what's going on, hopefully at the conscious level. But at some level of your brain, you're doing that on dozens or hundreds of topics all the time for the the area that you're watching. Mm-hmm. Yep. So while you're pulling together, you know, all of the data that's out there, like you said, about, you know, whatever, if it's a threat or a particular lay of the land in a certain geographic area, all the while, new data is still coming in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you're writing a longer paper, um, it, it can be really hard to keep it fresh and to keep it um, accurate when new data is still coming in because CIA analysts cover um, evolving uh, uh, threats and uh, situations uh, all the time, and uh, it's it can be really difficult to do a deep dive as situations evolve and change. One of the hardest things as an analyst is is being aware of your own assumptions uh, because you, you don't have perfect data. Right. If you had perfect information, it wouldn't be intelligence, right? It would be known. So you're making assumptions going in, mm-hmm. whether it's about the sources or about some of the logic and argumentation going into the assessment uh, or about your predictions for what could happen. How, how do you check your own assumptions and how, how do you find a way of overcoming that so that you're not inherently biasing or influencing everything just based on those initial assumptions you make? Um, so there we get great training, instructors like you, yeah. about uh, really uh, cool, sophisticated kind of analytical tools hmm. um, that you can uh, use to do things like check your assumptions mm-hmm. or um, hold a brainstorm to have um, other people um, uh you know, bring their perspectives into play and also possibly check your assumptions. Um, so there is that. And there are other resources um, uh, as an analyst, um, uh, kind of like um, an outside kind of analytical um, therapist, almost for lack mm. of a better. Like you mm-hmm. could go and talk to an out- somebody that's not as entrenched in the issue. Right. Um, and then they can almost certainly give you a, a, a different perspective of what you'd be looking at and possibly right. spark some ideas and, and some recognition of, of some of your assumptions and errors. So um, those are just some that I remember off the top of my head. But you're also mm-hmm. um, on a lot of these papers um, or analysis, once you've written, um, you're uh, coordinating with other members of the community. This gets back to where our discussion began. Mm-hmm. So you have analysts that are in uh, at DIA or um, at NCIS, um, and they almost certainly will have a different um, perspective because of where they sit and their clients and mm-hmm. what they see um, in their internal resources. And that's a, and that is a um, uh, it's a great way to check assumptions um, and to make the paper better, more thorough, more measured, um, what have you. Yeah. Because I'm old, when I started as an analyst, we did not have structured analytic techniques as such. I mean, we had them, and there were a few that people knew about analysis of competing hypotheses, which Mm -hmm. is one way of racking and stacking information in a technically in a grid-like format, information against possible explanations for that information, um, helping you to see things that you might not see if you're just rocking in your head. We had stuff like that. 
but we didn't have classes in it and we didn't have the, a list of 24 different <laughs> formal techniques. Right. So when it was time to check assumptions, it was something like, you know, I'm, I'm working on this piece of analysis. You like make a little list on the side. Like, yeah. What are my assumptions? Quickly. Yeah. Or <laughs> even better, because I worked with a lot of people, all of them that were smarter than me, I could print out my analysis because we printed a lot back then. Or in theory, send it to them electronically. But often we printed it. And I would just print it and hand it to the guy next to me. And I'd be like, you know, Mike, can you take a look at this or, or hand it on the other side? Give me a you know, sanity say, Allison, check. Can you, can you yeah. give this a look? Yeah. And I can't tell you how often, Lisa, somebody just read it. And in a few seconds, they just kind of looked up with a quizzical look and said, David, are you nuts? You know, <laughs> why would you assume that we would have intercepted communications from that guy? He's from this branch of the group, oh, not this branch. Okay. And I'd be like, oh, holy crap, you're right. Like, yeah. it didn't occur to me that that so so the the assumptions checking was kind of a version of what you mentioned the coordination mm -hmm. but sometimes it wasn't a formal coordination like please yeah. please vet all of the words in here so that we can move it forward to the president tonight sometimes it was just can can you just take a look and make sure i'm not missing something mm -hmm. and i found that at least in the places i worked that's where some of the most valuable analytic work took place is just getting smart analytically trained minds looking at it fresh because mm -hmm. they hadn't been soaking in the same sources and the same dilemmas right, I'd been. Right. But they were familiar enough with it to say, why 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 did you overlook this? Yep. Yep. That's yeah. that's the beauty of it. The team the teammates and the teams that you have mm -hmm. um, as an Intel um, analyst um, can be quite wonderful. They can also <laughs> cause difficulties if they, a teammate, is entrenched in a certain perspective um, and just mm -hmm. can't shake it and is um, um, not wanting that analysis to go out because they, right. they really have dug in and view it as, as quite wrong. And it can compare with uh, arguments among professors for the pettiness that it gets to. I remember one coordination session we had with a, an office where we had overlapping jurisdictions. And there was an, an analytic piece we were working on, and they disagreed with the characterization of one thing, mm -hmm. and it boiled down to one word. Right. You know, what what verb were we going to use to characterize this? And we dug in our proverbial heels and, and they theirs, and we ended up having to bring in our managers to negotiate, and then it was yep. their managers yeah. to negotiate. Yeah. And it was at least it was at least four or five hours one afternoon with all of those people with us yelling at each other. And I mean, looking back at it, as a human being, I'm embarrassed. But as a taxpayer, how horrifying, <laughs> right? Now, it mattered. It was important analysis. We wanted to get it right. I would like to think that because of that friction, there was some heat and light that came from it. But I'm really not sure whether yeah. it just got to the level of human emotions getting in the way and us saying, no, we think we're right, damn it, so stop complaining. Right. That's not helpful at that point. Right. And and I really enjoy the way, I mean, CIA has such a good um, kind of vision of moving um, analysts around to different teams every couple of years. There is that, you know, like um, uh, try something new, learn something new. Don't become so entrenched that, you know, you can't really see the issue very clearly anymore. Um, there are the experts, absolutely, that have been working on an issue for a long, long time, and we want them in the room as well. But I, I, there's a lot of value for folks moving to different accounts mm. and, and getting different perspectives mm -hmm. and, and coming to an issue fresh. And one of those for me was, oh, man, when I entered the Afghanistan uh, arena at CIA, that is um, mm. 
that is a hardcore um, group of folks. Um, and I entered it quite late um, in my career because um, I, I like a good challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and you are amongst serious experts in the room, um, and it's intimidating. Um, but um, I think I had recently turned 40, and when you turn 40 as a woman, sometimes you just say, F it, I'm just going to be me. And I was in that phase. So I, I asked dumb questions, and um, and I was okay with it. I was, you know, I knew the issue. Like, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And they all, a lot of times they they cause discussion. Yep. Um, you call them dumb questions. I, I call that illumination. I mean, sometimes you'll cut to the issue in a way people have overlooked because they're they're too deep in the issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've already crossed another blurred line here because we're we're talking about analysis, but then talking about the the presentation of it and what word are we going to choose? So, yeah. analysis is at its core the the thinking part, right? Here's a bunch of information. I process it in my brain, and I'm trying to figure out first of all what's happening. Mm -hmm. Then, secondly, so what? Like, why does it matter? And then what's likely to happen next? Mm -hmm. Not all analysis does all of that, but usually you'll get some of each of those. That can all go on in your brain. That can all be neurons firing. Doesn't do much good though, right? Unless you have a, a, a president and, and you know she's a mind reader or a secretary of state and, and he is tapped into your thoughts. You've got to somehow communicate that. And the two main ways are writing and briefing. Mm -hmm. um, talk through analytic writing and how it differs from other kinds of writing in your experience mm -hmm. um, and why that is considered a part of the intelligence craft, because everybody writes sometime, but intelligence writing is considered a core part of analysis itself. Why is that? Um, yes, and you just kind of laid out that old structure. Wow, I have PTSD going through <laughs> this again. Um, <laughs> the what, the so what, um, and what's next. Um, uh, yeah, so if you can't uh, effectively and efficiently uh, display or explain all of that beautiful analysis and research that you did. You know, it's just stuck in your brain. It's not helpful to anybody in there. Um, and you really, um, you need to use the structure that's given to you. You're trained on it. Um, new analysts go through several months of training um, with a lot of focus on writing and, and, and the writing skills. Bottom line up front, in case the president or secretary of state or whoever it may be um, gets pulled away, they read the first sentence and they can they can actually kind of wing it based on the first sentence to, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, you know, it's it's really important to be able to tell the story um, in a short format and in a long format. Um, when you're trying to sum up uh, the status of the Afghan war and where we should go from here, mm -hmm. we we loved our long papers. They were arduous and you know and uh, fully sourced and um, had lots of text boxes and graphics and tons of things. Um, but it's that PDB. It's the short paper on what's going on in the Afghan war and what, what should we do about it given the current policy um, mm -hmm. uh, proposal or whatever that may be. That short paper with it, you know, three paragraphs, two paragraphs to tell the president what's going on. Um, that is the the hardest thing you can do as an analyst, writing, uh, distilling all of that information, all of that sourcing um, and letting go of some of that information that may be extraneous yeah. um, and wanting to hold on to it. Um, I remember my approach to it was, you know, my PDBs or my shorter papers, they started out as like 10-page papers, <laughs> right? And then you yep. slowly yep. start whittling away the information as best you can. Um, and then you um, 
through coordination. Um, you you have other people that can help out. Although oftentimes, come to think of it, they'll add more information into it. So there's that problem. Just to too. complicate it. <laughs> No, I'm, re- I'm reliving it all, sorry, as we're talking. So, um, yeah. But yeah, the, the writing um, is very tricky, and I was very appreciative of all the training um, I got um, there to learn that technique. And I think, honestly, coming out of the agency, everyone should write like a CIA officer. It's so, I mean, it's so clear. We're taught to like, here's your argument, and why do you believe it? What's the evidence that supports it? You know, paragraph, bullet, 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 like whatever. It's it's so concise and clear that now when I have meetings or I read written product, like I, I'm out of the room in five minutes. Maybe it's a problem because I'm able to express <laughs> myself to very quickly point. and get to the yeah. point. Yeah. I can't stand people <laughs> that aren't and <laughs> beat around the bush. Um, it's 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 a really beautiful tried and true technique. I mean, and and it seems to me there are a couple of purposes of that. One is legitimately the people that you are writing for as an intelligence analyst are extremely busy people. I mean, Mm -hmm. a president of the United States, regardless of who it is, has a schedule that can be managed down to the minute. And so there's no spare time for superfluous prose. So so you really, it needs to be efficient for people who are busy. And that's not just the president. That can be the customs official. That can be the deputy assistant secretary of state, the ambassador, the, you know, the admiral in the field, whatever it is. They're, They're busy people and they don't have the time to wade through a lot of extraneous words. Right. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is you really don't want to be misunderstood. I mean, it's nice if you're understood. That is the goal. But it's even more important not to be misunderstood. Precision of language. You're trying yes. to communicate that this terrorist threat is, in this hypothetical example we bounced around, is high. But your language is convoluted and it's got so many caveats and hedges in it that a customer can read that product and come away thinking, oh, so the terrorist threat isn't very high. You've got a you've got a problem, maybe not with your thinking, but in the way you put that thinking into print. Right, because remember, let's go back to our research. We had how many sources we were looking at with all different kinds of veracity and credibility um, from the entire spectrum, yeah. and you're pulling all of that together. Um, and yeah, you've got to have one line in your PDB or whatever that explains that particular issue with uh, with yeah. all the sourcing there. So the writing, uh, the way I hear you describe it, the writing is part of the analytic process. You went through really is focused on that conciseness, concision. I don't know what the white word is because we're talking about words. <laughs> but keeping it short and efficient. Yep. Uh, and, and it just incredibly clear. That's great for reading something quickly and taking away mm-hmm. a core message. It's really dry and boring. This is not like prose for the ages. Yeah, so I mentioned graphics. Love mm. graphics. Um, when they can explain, and certain presidents mm. really enjoyed graphics as well. I'll mm-hmm. just throw that out there. Yeah. Um, when you can explain a complicated issue with yeah. a great picture, mm-hmm. and we would work with graphic artists to do that, um, some of my best products uh, were uh, videos and graphics. Yeah, and that's, I think that's true of almost any Homo sapiens. Because I can imagine an analytic product. <laughs> Let's say that you're preparing a senior government official to go and meet with a foreign leader. And this is a new foreign leader who hasn't had a lot of exposure to American officials, so they don't have firsthand knowledge or even secondhand knowledge. But you're trying to communicate, you know, in this country, which we generally don't care about as much, but in this country, uh, they've really got this rabid following because, you know, this leader over there is really charismatic. And in a group, you can just see this magnetic appeal and the way that that he speaks and 
does the words putting together thing, draws people to him. It's almost like this charm that he has. You can put that into words like I just did, right? And you can envision a written product that has that. Mm -hmm. Or you can pull out a video yeah. and say, watch a 30-second clip of this guy. You won't understand the language, right. but you just watch how people react to him. Mm -hmm. There's Most of us react to that video in a way we might not to the written word. Sure. Yeah. So supplementing it with a, a table or a chart, yes, video in particular, mm -hmm. really good way to take the analysis up a level. Yep, for sure. Hard to do too. Yes. Right? Yes. Because I'm not a da data visualization expert. No. Uh, thankfully, most intelligence bureaucracies have yeah, some really good graphic artists and data visualizers who can who can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've we, we've talked about research and and analytic tradecraft and and writing, mm -hmm. and of course briefing is a part of it too, right? You can also say the things instead of putting the things in in writing. There's one aspect of intelligence analysis that you did though, and I'm still on the fence whether this is a a, a unique role of intelligence analysis or whether it's just a flavor of intelligence. And that's targeting. Mm -hmm. Talk through what targeting is, not in the you know kinetic military context of targeting, right. but what is targeting analysis and what in your mind is slightly different about it? Um, yes. So it is a discipline unto itself, um, for sure, especially given um, the time frame where I worked at the agency when you had two big theaters of war. You had Iraq and Afghanistan, among other theaters of war throughout the throughout the world. Um, and I did, uh, in particular, terrorism targeting. There is other targeting that you can do, um, like of uh, uh, weapons or um, uh, materials. Um, so for terrorism targeting, I mean, you would um, basically try to build out, you know, as much data about your particular target as possible to understand your target and uh, build out like their pattern of life, their associate networks. So you want to understand um, when does your terrorist get up in the morning? When does your terrorist go to mm -hmm. their car? Where do they drive? What's uh, Where do they have lunch? Um, you know, getting that pattern of life down to understand their movements um, and who do they interact with, building out their associate network, um, okay. who are the family members um, uh, that live with him or her and how many children and um, what city do they live in and, you know, um, uh, those are just kind of some of I don't, I don't want to give too much detail, mm -hmm. but you know, um, you're 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 pulling all that data together and um, really getting to know um, mm -hmm. that terrorist um, as best you can, um, and then understanding what gaps you have in the information and how to get those gaps. Depending on what your end goal is, is your end goal to arrest or remove the terrorist from that right. area, um, or is it to you know, approach that terrorist, I, whatever it may be, but like um, you really, um, it's really building out the full picture of that individual. There is one prominent public explanation of this, and it's a, a unique case for several reasons, but it does get into some of this, and that's the process that led to the raid in Abbottabad okay. and the identification of bin Laden, okay. right? Targeting analysis was 
a part of that when it comes to some of these things you've talked about, the pattern of life analysis, the network mapping of yeah. associates. And yeah, I'd like to see what, what's out there in the open to feel more comfortable talking. You know, I'm yeah. just not sure what is fully out there. Yeah, these I mean, are kind of generic terms and approaches as, as best I can, but yeah. So there's some good books out there. Even the International Spy Museum has that uh, display where you're actually getting some of the information and then, you know, who could this be true of? And, you know, how, what else would you need to know to do this? Okay. It's like, okay. oh, that's that's interesting. Okay. But again, not necessarily typical of chasing every terrorist uh, in that case. So targeting, you know, yeah, I'm still not sure if it's its own discipline. I think it is, but you're still using those same research and analytic techniques. You right? are. You're culling through a ton of data, mm-hmm. um, human, technical, open source, all of it, and mm-hmm. pulling it together. So I, I would absolutely see it as a, as a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a lot of analysts um, performed that type of work and would, would go back and forth between, um, tradi- we called it like traditional mm-hmm. analysis versus targeting analysis, yeah. So this this is all work that you have chosen in recent years to apply to genealogy. Yes. And do I remember right that that this turn kind of started also with your husband? It did. Good memory. Yeah. yeah. Um, he uh, went on a journey, a genealogical journey with his father, oh. and they were able to trace back one line of his family to Jamestown, um, which uh, took a lot of time um, and as I watched them on this journey and doing the research, I like I just watched. They're very stoic men. Um, I, 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 it was a beautiful um, thing to watch. It was a way for them to really bond and bring in other family members. And discussions were um, flowing and heated and wonderful about all the great things about family. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. um, so. It wasn't just the actual genealogical work. It was like the entire atmosphere that yeah. surrounded the work and the effort that I was pretty blown away by. Okay. What what I could imagine uh, one doing upon seeing this is saying, oh, that's fun. Maybe I'll do a little genealogy myself. Maybe I'll capture some of that bonding with my family yep. or do a little digging. I, I can see one doing that. Or uh, one can do what you did and say, <laughs> I'm going to leave a promising career <laughs> And I'm going <laughs> to yes. decide to do this as a business. What was that thinking process like for you? Because that is not a that is not an easy choice, but it really has. You have a lot of confidence when you make that choice. That oh, this is something I'm going to do, and and it's going to work. <laughs> there are ups and downs to every small business, so um, it's still a work in progress. But um, you know, as after watching that and thinking through um, business, my husband thought of it as well, and um, we both kind of formed it. Um, at the same time, you have the genealogy industry really mm-hmm. taking off. Is like, this around the time that Ancestry.com was becoming like a big thing? Huge thing, yeah. right? Um, uh, and some of the DNA work, I, I, I don't. That's not my main focus, the DNA stuff. It's more mm-hmm. the paper trail. But um, right. so um, Ancestry.com is taking off. People are giving this as gifts, you know, subscriptions as gifts. And um, and we kind of got to know the tool itself, and it has its limitations, um, especially if you're not going to come at it with a like a, a kind of a measured and smart research approach like we've talked about for most of this hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so the industry is taking off. I saw this beautiful journey. And then um, – as uh, putting together the business, um, every single person, David, that I talked to and told about it, they're like, oh, yep, sign me up. 
I want, I want in. I want, mm. I have, I, every person you talk to has yeah. a family history story. Like, yeah. um, I play a lot of tennis. Uh, all of my tennis colleagues, like on the court, I got like 20 clients. Like, um, it's, it's, first of all, it's fun to see that kind of excitement. Um, but it's also, and then doing the work and handing over the final product is, is so gratifying to, um, to be able to um, open a client's eyes to their family history and, and, and teach them things they didn't know about, too. So all of those things, I'm like, wow, this is, so this is pretty cool. Um, there is something here. Um, this has, I think this has legs. Um, and, yeah, that was kind of the genesis for that. Even, even Hollywood has picked up on that that magic moment you described of delivering the product with yeah. the, the show. Finding the, your roots. Finding your roots, thank yeah. you, where, yeah, yeah you, they, they give a window into some of the research and some of the analysis, but they really are trying to capture that wow moment of, right. I've, just, I've just learned something. There's a revelation here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, let's, it might be fruitful, actually, to describe why you're well-suited for this because so many of the things we talked about with research and analysis uh, mm-hmm. and, of course, writing and presentation and the targeting discipline itself, Absolutely. so many of these apply to genealogy. So let's let's apply that framework and, and walk through these analytic slices as they inform your genealogical work. So first, you know, research. Yeah. How, how is it helpful to have the research background you've had in order to get at these sources you need now? Um, so really applies directly when you're looking at um, pulling in a ton of different data from different kind of resources and disciplines, calling through the data and discerning what is good data and bad data. And an example of that, you know, a lot of ancestors have the same darn name, you know, know, like (laughs) figuring out and mapping out (laughs) who who that report is actually referring to can take an entire day. Um, So pulling, you know, really all that data together and then identifying the gaps. And I love, I'm good at this. I love to do this. Um, I do think most traditional genealogists would stop, be like, okay, so that's where the information ends. Mm -hmm. But um, I uh, find creative ways. So you've got obviously things like Mm Ancestry.com and what's the other one? Family Search. FamilySearch.org, MyHeritage, like yeah. mm-hmm. those are the big ones. So those are there, mm-hmm. but you, you don't stop there. You you have other sources, right? Mm-hmm. You okay. find ways. Um, does that does that involve people yes. in various places in the world yes. who can do more, what would you call it, more tactical, hands-on Boots research? on the ground, absolutely. Wow, that takes it to a, to a next level. <laughs> it does. Because I know people who have done the travel and done it, and in the European context at least, for, for some people, they'll go and they'll find – the church or the monastery mm-hmm. or something in the local area that has records that help them. Um, but not all of that, obviously, has been digitized and put onto these sites. That's right. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also a lot of other things, like other resources that simply these these sites can't get access to and right. stories of people yeah. in, a, in a particular the place. The human element, too. That's right. And that's you know a little bit of my um, CIA collection and getting the information. I ask clients and their relatives to tell me the stories. Mm-hmm. Those are important. Like, right. And while they might not be 100% fact mm-hmm. or truth, they are, they are part of that family story, and I bring that in. Hmm. Okay, so you got the research part checked. Mm-hmm. What about the analysis? I mean, you're gathering data, including a lot of data that other sources uh, don't get, mm-hmm. but you've got to somehow piece together the, the lives of this client's ancestors and figure out how did they get to where they ended up? Why did they choose to 
in many cases for where I assume the bulk of your clientele is, why did they choose to emigrate and, and come to the United States at some point? Uh, how, do, how do those principles of analysis we talked about and that thinking process, how, do, how does that apply to genealogy? Absolutely, it does, um, especially when um, I kind of am drawing from those skills of, uh, of managing analysts, too, of looking at the broader picture, too. What are the broader trends? Yeah, you had an ancestor that was slowly moving westward. Well, mm-hmm. um, why? What was going on in Indiana at the time? What, what, mm-hmm. Oh, I see some underground railroad network activity over here. Did that affect uh, why the ancestor moved down here. Oh, I see they got uh, land from the Homestead Act. Okay, obviously enticement there. So I love to answer those whys as well. Yeah. And when I'm writing the story, it gives me um, that nice what, and, you know, so what, and the whys, and builds out the story to make it more dynamic as opposed to ancestor born here, married here, died here. You know, like, okay, well, I, I track them geographically. Um, I look at their families and their neighborhoods and try to get a sense um, for their life. So a lot of analysis about broader trends, historical context, um, and things going on around um, that ancestor. Um, That is definitely part of the analysis. But the targeting piece, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun, but it comes into play with the analysis. Um, really, I, I I employ some of the old techniques I absolutely used to employ, including timelining, understanding, you know, where they were in different places. And if there's someone with a similar name, I will do various timelines to understand who was moving with okay. who and why did they move. And that can help right. provide new leads and breadcrumbs to go after. Um, I also do a ton of associate network mapping. So if talk, I talk through that, how how does that work when you're you're trying to help somebody trace a lineage? So when you hit that uh, kind of brick wall, when there's no further data mm-hmm. um, on the ancestor, and you lose them in census data or land records or wherever you're looking. I start to go after the siblings. I start to look at the siblings' records. Mm-hmm. I start to look at the spouse. I, I start to look at you know neighbors, who else was next to them in the sun, you know, whatever that may be, but I'm mapping out their network. Um, again, something I don't think a typical genealogist would do. And then yeah. that almost certainly leads to additional leads or at least a different direction to take the research and um, and continue the story. I mean, at worst, it, it widens, it kind of fleshes out the family a little bit more, yeah. at, at least. Right. But I would I would guess that at least some of the time, maybe most of the time, you, you find that that is a lead into uh, an angle you wouldn't have thought of before. It like goes around. Yeah, it goes issue. around. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the presentation part. We talked about analysis being incomplete if it stays in your head. So you've done all this work <laughs> and it's in your head and you've come up with it. Um, how do you apply some of the principles of applying intelligence analysis to to the art of applying genealogical findings? Yeah, um, I definitely write, uh, well, I write these narratives of the ancestors, and I write like a CIA officer for sure. <laughs> All of my sentences are sourced. <laughs> I make sure there is a source tied mm-hmm. to them, and then I talk about the source a little bit if I need to to explain the source. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's a source that you find that it's somewhat iffy, uh-huh. that is, it's it's not 
I don't want to say in writing because there's a lot of crap in writing, but it's it's something that you can't verify. Yes. You will acknowledge that this has lower confidence as a result. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So totally using all of those old techniques. Um, mm-hmm. I just you couldn't, in my opinion, put together a story that is not fully sourced uh, mm-hmm. with the sourcing caveated appropriately, um, especially in the in the realm of genealogy. It just you right. have to source every everything, otherwise. It's a fabrication. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not useful, you know, to the family. So and and like I said, I pull in um, even family stories that are erroneous. I'll be like, mm-hmm. well, according to family stories, you know, Aunt Sue, mm-hmm. you know, was driving the car and when they got into the accident, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the family blamed her. However, according to these newspaper articles, it was actually her son. You know, whatever right. it may be. But I'm pulling in because it's part of the family lore. It's part of the family stories, and it's just as meaningful in this realm. Um, yeah. You know, as well, probably you could you could make the case also in the intelligence world that commentary from sources and stuff like that provide important flavor um, for the client so, would, or the I, customer. I would guess there are some moments, and again, with a parallel to the intelligence, right. when, <laughs> when you have that exquisite intelligence collection that informs good analysis, or you have the the crappy intelligence collection, but there's actually exquisite intelligence analysis going on to yeah. tell the picture, and you brief. The customer, whether it's again the president or you know a desk officer at the treasury department, you're you brief the customer and they're like, "Aha, I can use that." Right. And it's like the, the light appears and you hear the chorus of angels because all is good with the world. <laughs> I would imagine there's some of those in genealogy too, where you find, you know what, you didn't tell me this. You thought your family story was that you know your your grandfather's great grandfather, you know, came here for this reason, but it turns out. You know, he came here for this reason, and he actually founded this great institution. And there's that moment that you have with with clients. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing there's also the opposite, right? Where the family lore has it that you know, great grandpa always said he was a war hero, and you find out, no, actually, he he went AWOL. He yeah. ran away. Yeah. How do you obviously handling the former moment m- moment is preferable, but how do you handle the latter moment where you're telling families something they don't want to hear? Mm-hmm. So um, being a a good and genuine researcher, I do present all that data to family members. And a lot of times what I've experienced as far as a client will say, we kind of knew that (laughs) or we had an inkling, but um, we don't really acknowledge it. So thank you for that, but don't include that in the the final story that you write up. (laughs) So, so, you know, the, the, the family lore is, you know, grandpa died you know, of some stomach ailment, but you find out grandma poisoned him, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, like I said, I'll be forthcoming It'll and yeah. we'll go back and forth and talk about it. Um, but I, you know, I write the stories of their ancestors. It is their story and they get to edit it and have it how they want it okay. at the end. Oh, okay. And a lot of clients do ask me to just remove some, some data that they don't like that is uh, not pleasant sometimes. Okay. Yeah. That's understandable. Yeah. Now, I know that – well, I should say I, I don't know this. I strongly suspect, based on what I do know of you, that you were not an analyst of Japanese affairs and you were not – like anyone in the intelligence community, you were not an analyst of the history of the Civil War and U.S. communities within it. <laughs> no. uh, but yet through this genealogy research, you've gotten to learn a lot about things like Japanese internment camps in Hawaii and yeah. you already mentioned the Underground Railroad in, in Indiana or Quaker settlements in North Carolina and how they navigated Civil War dynamics. Yes. What's the most interesting historical era or location or event 
that you've dug into that you didn't even know you were interested in, but once you got into it, you found yourself intellectually stimulated by? Oh, there's there's so many. It's really hard. It's really hard to pick. I mean, there's there's the I've done a bunch of very moving Holocaust survivor cases tracking mm. uh, ancestors that were in the camps mm. um, and how they got um, how they ended up getting out or mm-hmm. actually meeting spouses in the displaced persons camp afterwards and starting a family hope out of ashes like just really right. cool stories um, but uh, the one that you referenced that is probably my most meaningful and favorite was the mm-hmm. Japanese internment camps um, in Hawaii I mean we we learned about them in school but I really did a serious deep dive um, and you know this client's family hired me to find out what happened to his grandfather um, who was arrested right after Pearl Harbor hit um, Hawaii and he was living as an Okinawan refugee in Hawaii and he was arrested and all his possessions were burned um, and uh, he wanted to he, he wanted the file he wanted to see why he was arrested where he went who set him free because his grandfather would not talk about it you know so um I, I found it and navigated the archives and um, a bunch of resources in Hawaii um, and found the FBI file and got it really? for the family. And, and, that, and that was publicly accessible? Uh, in the archives, they have a lot of resources for the Japanese internment um, period of history. So to understand, yeah, our records and holdings as the U.S. government and that yeah. they have that there is kind of incredible. Um, but to be able to find it and provide that to this family, you know, was beyond uh, meaningful. It was so cool. It was really cool because in those records, too, there were Im- some immigration records um, about the uh, originating town uh, in Japan that they were from. Oh. They didn't know any of it. So it was really cool. It was that, really cool. that is revelatory. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find one. that there are a lot of these what I'll call you know, hard copy archives uh, obviously, at, at one level, people know the National Archives and the kinds of things that can be in there in terms of government records. Uh, presidential libraries have extensive information yes. about their their presidents. They do. Um, which occasionally could be useful because so many presidents have such massive families and connections. You yes. see this anytime you know, somebody marries into the British royal family. They have not only tracing their lineage to other British royalty over the ages from different ruling uh, families, but also... You know, they're the 13th cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, and they are the second cousin twice removed of Barack Obama. Right. So obviously there are places where you can find things like that, but there's also diminishing returns. You're not going to go to 13 presidential libraries in person and the National Archives in College Park and university libraries. You're not going to go there for these private collections for every client. Right. That said, have you found some of them useful when you had a lead that said, Yes, the personal papers of this person at this university will have something that no other source can give me. Yeah, absolutely. And living in Washington, D.C. is such a great place to live when doing this type of work because not only do you have one of the archives, and there are archives actually around the country, National Archives, uh, and then locations around the country. But we have the National Archives here. We have the Library of Congress, which is a wonderful resource, especially for genealogy. Hmm. Who'd have thunk, right? But um, they have actually a lot of these kind of very small published genealogical books that families do and have done throughout history. Yeah. And you can... So almost from from private collections, but because they're published somewhere, Library of Congress gets a copy. I don't, you know, I don't... 
fully understand the whole <laughs> how they get the coffee or how that works. But I will find these these mm-hmm. small books that I will. You have to physically go to the Library of Congress because it's not digitized. Um, you put your order in for the book, and then it takes you know thirty minutes mm-hmm. for the person. I, I envision people with carts like yeah. in, in a maze in a labyrinth in the basement, and then they come out with the book and. Boom! I've got like yeah. all this cool data and pedigree charts for this family um, because of the Library of Congress. How cool is that? What a great source! Yeah. Now I have a distant recollection of hearing once that the LDS Church, oh yes, has amazing archives in in Utah. I've been to them. Mm-hmm. Have you? Mm-hmm. Dis- dis- describe that just as a repository because if if you are not descended from or related to someone that you know is in the LDS church, you might think, well, that's useless. But my understanding is that's not the case, that some of their research really is very wide and very deep. Absolutely. So they, um, their database, familysearch.org, um, houses uh, way more U.S. records um, than Ancestry.com does or MyHeritage.com does, but it's not as user-friendly. It's not all okay. indexed, so you have to go in there and do some digital paging right. um, and go a bit cross-eyed while you're doing it. It's 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 a bit arduous, but um, so they have like digitized like all of like let's say Indianapolis's like uh, land records from 1810 through 1870, right? Like okay. so, you can go in there and check it out. A lot of the resources you have to go to an actual. Um, like office, like to to get on their computers to look at them, or actually go to their library as well. So, and I've been to it. Um, so they're just kind of a a great repository for um, all of like a, a bunch of U.S. records, different states and counties. Um, and then they have a lot of family trees in them as well. Um, and they do that for purposes of you know wanting to increase the numbers of uh, there's they have their own um, you know yeah. priority um, sure. in doing that. Sure. Um, but their records are outstanding and, yeah. and pervasive. Yeah. yeah. This is a, a, feels like to me as I'm asking it a prying question that could be uncomfortable. So I'm going to jump into asking it. Right. <laughs> Did you discover something about your own ancestry that blew you away or at least gave you something that made you feel differently about your own family? So not really. I'm, I come from immigrants, somewhat recent immigrants. So the mm-hmm. records dried up pretty quickly. Um, like I have my father's side is uh, Jewish Lithuanian mm-hmm. um, immigrants. And go figure, Lithuania, you know, there's not a lot of great <laughs> records out there. Um, yeah. And they, they came over in like the 19-teens, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my mother's side, Polish immigrants. Um, we did discover on my mother's side, however, that um, we thought there was some German lineage in there. But during the war, mm-hmm. Uh, ancestors changed their name yeah. to more German-sounding names to be safe. Yeah. So, um, but those are actually pretty typical stories. So, um, nothing incredible. But going back and looking through the stories and talking with my relatives again, that beautiful journey. Like you know, it happens. So it's just yeah. like stories come out of the woodwork, and it's it's a wonderful experience to do it. I recently read a book by Norman Davies called Vanished Kingdoms. Uh, he's a you know renowned historian. And he took a look at, uh, across Europe, uh, these various former countries or entities oh, yeah. of a political, some of which you've heard of, like the Soviet Union, and some others that even Ga- I, geography Galicia. nerd, Oh, my gosh. Like, of, yeah, right? they're just so fascinating. Mapping out Europe, oh, it takes But one of the side notes of it, which, of course, as a good historian, he, he slipped in here, is that some of these we have really good records on. 
Like you, you get all the details about who married who in 1213 and why it happened and then their connection here <laughs> and what business they did that led them to this. And one that stood out to me was the, the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth in that area that because of the partition of Poland that happened and so much, there are hundreds of years of history that were at best absconded with and hid somewhere and some have not been found, mm -hmm. but in many cases were deliberately destroyed. And it, so it does lead to a black hole in some areas, including in, yeah. in your own family history. Yeah. There's some records that simply don't exist anymore and are lost. When it comes to foreign countries overall, mm -hmm. not, not in the United States, do you find a great disparity between the level of records by country or region? I find that I'm always surprised, actually, mm -hmm. by what I can find. Um, I did a Norway project. Norwegian records. Ooh. Good. Yeah. Yeah. There weren't that many Norwegians, but and they all had the same names, so that was difficult to <laughs> to parse through. I could but, see that being an <laughs> occupational hazard. <laughs> but um, I I had a great project, yeah, researching somebody's Norwegian history. Um, Mexico, mm -hmm. I've I've found actually a surprising amount of records um, for ancestors in Mexico. Um, I was I was pretty surprised by that, um, especially as the U.S. formed and you know. Mexico and California and the whole Southwest, like the the borders were shifting. I had to map this out, um, and what became the U.S. and what you know was crunched down into Mexico and some of the areas in between and where those records ended up getting housed. Um, so fascinating. I get to learn about so much random crap. I, I'm telling you, but uh, it's it's really it's really fun. Um, the geography and the history is is fascinating and yeah, yeah mind bending. Uh -huh. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I guess it makes sense when. There's a peace treaty, for example, between the United States and Mexico after a conflict, and they redraw a border. <laughs> Mexico wouldn't automatically hand over all the records from some of it. No, that, that, that's not some. Maybe it does occur in some cases, which is wonderful for modern-day political boundaries. But in many cases, you've got to go other places to get the information because right. of who once owned it. And a lot of times it comes down to towns and counties and like right. and how they house things. And um, yeah. and the mormonsfamilysearch.org does a good job of actually pulling together a lot of that data. Um, so yeah. yeah. Well, you've mentioned a couple of those websites, which is very kind of you. So I'm going to actually mention a different one, which is familyhistoryintelligence.com, which is your website <laughs> Yay, where, yeah. where you do some of this work and uh, offer people some ideas and then different packages for investigating this, this kind of thing and taking advantage of your analytic expertise to, to do that. Yep. Well, as you know, we end our podcasts by reaching into our vaunted chatterbox. Okay. So I will open it up and see what it has to offer today. Recommend any recent book you've read podcast you've listened to, or TV show you've watched? I am almost done with a phenomenal book, um, Demon Copperfield. Demon, not, not David Copperfield. No, Demon. Demon Copperfield. Tell me about that. Um, Copperhead, that was it. See, I knew it was Copperhead. a little off. I apologize. Both sound good, actually. Um, but apparently it's supposed to be a parody on David Copperfield. The, some of the characters <sighs> are supposed to align. However, um, mm -hmm. it's really an incredible... Um, and just tragic story of a kid that becomes an orphan and um, and his uh, his journey um, as an orphan and gets caught up in um, the opioid crisis and bounces oh, wow. from family wow. to family, discovers some family. He's incredibly resilient. Um, it's really well written. It's totally compelling. It's such a page turner. Um, I haven't been able to, to put it down. Um, a really, really good book. So I highly recommend it. Demon Copperhead. 
it sounds difficult but rewarding. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So. Wow. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me. I've I've learned more about genealogy here than I have in my life. Great, um, which great. shows perhaps I have not dug deep enough into it myself. Um, but also, I, I like you know the, the clarity and examples you offer on intelligence analysis because it's been it's been too long that we we haven't talked about that in depth. And I appreciate you sharing it with me. Yeah, I had to dust off that knowledge a little bit. So, but that was fun. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.